0: we continue our story. The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle I may have commented upon my friend's power of mental detachment, but never have I wondered at it more than upon that spring morning in Cornwall when for two hours he discoursed upon Celts, arrowheads, and shards, as lightly as if no sinister mystery were waiting for his solution. It was not until we had returned in the afternoon to our cottage "'that we found a visitor awaiting us, "'who soon brought our minds back to the matter in hand. "'Neither of us needed to be told who that visitor was. "'The huge body, the craggy and deeply-seamed face, "'with the fierce eyes and hawk-like nose, "'the grizzled hair which nearly brushed our cottage ceiling, "'the beard, golden at the fringes and white near the lips, "'save for the nicotine stain from his perpetual cigar,' All these were as well known in London as in Africa, and could only be associated with the tremendous personality of Dr. Leon Sterndale, the great lion hunter and explorer. We had heard of his presence in the district, and had once or twice caught sight of his tall figure upon the moorland paths. He made no advances to us, however, nor would we have dreamed of doing so to him. As it was well known that it was his love of seclusion which caused him to spend the greater part of the intervals between his journeys in a small bungalow buried in the lonely wood of Beauchamparians. Here, amid his books and his maps, he lived an absolutely lonely life, attending to his own simple wants and paying little apparent heed to the affairs of his neighbors. It was a surprise to me, therefore, to hear him asking Holmes in an eager voice whether he had made any advance in his reconstruction of this mysterious episode. The county police are utterly at fault, said he, but perhaps your wider experience has suggested some conceivable explanation. My only claim to being taken into your confidence is that during my many residences here, I have come to know this family of Tujenis very well. Indeed, upon my Cornish mother's side I could call them cousins, and their strange fate has naturally been a great shock to me. I may tell you that I had got as far as Plymouth upon my way to Africa, but the news reached me this morning and I came straight back again to help in the inquiry. Holmes raised his eyebrows. Did you lose your boat through it? I will take the next. Dear me, that is friendship indeed. I tell you they were relatives. Quite so. Cousins of your mother was your baggage aboard the ship?' "'Some of it, but the main part at the hotel.' "'I see. "'But surely this event could not have found its way into the Plymouth Morning Papers.' "'No, sir, I had a telegram.' "'Might I ask, from whom?' "'A shadow passed over the gaunt face of the explorer. "'You are very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes.' "'It is my business.' With an effort, Dr. Sterndale recovered his ruffled composure. "'I have no objection to telling you,' he said. "'It was Mr. Roundy, the vicar, who sent me the telegram which recalled me.' "'Thank you,' said Holmes. "'I may say, in answer to your original question, "'that I have not cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, "'but that I have every hope of reaching some conclusion.' It would be premature to say more. Perhaps you would not mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction. No, I can hardly answer that. Then I have wasted my time and need not prolong my visit. The famous doctor strode out of our cottage in considerable ill humor, and within five minutes Holmes had followed him. I saw him no more until the evening, When he returned with a slow step and haggard face, which assured me that he had made no great progress with his investigation, he glanced at a telegram which awaited him and threw it into the grate. "'From the Plymouth Hotel, Watson,' he said, "'I learned the name of it from the vicar, "'and I wired to make certain that Dr. Leon Sterndale's account was true. "'It appears that he did indeed spend last night there,' and that he actually has allowed some of his baggage to go on to Africa while he returned to be present at this investigation. What do you make of that, Watson? He is deeply interested. Deeply interested, yes. There is a thread here which we had not yet grasped and which might lead us through the tangle. Cheer up, Watson, for I am very sure that our material has not yet all come to hand. When it does, we may soon leave our difficulties behind us. Little did I think how soon the words of Holmes would be realized, or how strange and sinister would be that new development which opened up an entirely fresh line of investigation. I was shaving at my window in the morning when I heard the rattle of hoofs, and, looking up, saw a dog cart coming at a gallop down the road. It pulled up at our door, and our friend, the vicar, sprang from it and rushed up our garden path. Holmes was already dressed, and we hastened down to meet him. Our visitor was so excited that he could hardly articulate, but at last in gasps and bursts, his tragic story came out of him. "'We are devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes! My poor parish is devil-ridden!' he cried. "'Satan himself is losing it! We are given over into his hands!' he danced about it in his agitation." a ludicrous object if it were not for his ashy face and startled eyes. Finally, he shot out his terrible news. Mr. Mortimer Trigenis died during the night, and with exactly the same symptoms as the rest of his family. Holmes sprang to his feet, all energy in an instant. Can you fit us both into your dog cart? Yes, I can. Then, Watson, we will postpone our breakfast. Mr. Roundy, we are entirely at your disposal. Hurry, hurry, before things get disarranged. The lounger occupied two rooms at the vicarage, which were at an angle by themselves, the one above the other. Below was a large sitting room, above his bedroom. They looked out upon a croquet lawn, which came up to the windows. We had arrived before the doctor or the police so that everything was absolutely undisturbed. Let me describe exactly the scene as we saw it upon that misty March morning. It has left an impression which can never be effaced from my mind. The atmosphere of the room was of a horrible and depressing stuffiness. The servant who had first entered had thrown up the window, or it would have been even more intolerable. This might partly be due to the fact that a lamp stood flaring and smoking on the center table. Beside it, sat the dead man, leaning back in his chair, his thin beard projecting, his spectacles pushed up onto his forehead, and his lean, dark face turned towards the window, and twisted into the same distortion of terror which had marked the features of his dead sister. His limbs were convulsed, and his fingers contorted as though he had died in a very paroxysm of fear." He was fully clothed, though there were signs that his dressing had been done in a hurry. We had already learned that his bed had been slept in, and that the tragic end had come to him in the early morning. One realized the red-hot energy which underlay Holmes's phlegmatic exterior when one saw the sudden change which came over him from the moment that he entered the fatal apartment. In an instant he was tense and alert, his eyes shining, his face set, his limbs quivering with eager activity, he was out on the lawn, in through the window, round the room, and up into the bedroom, for all the world like a d***ing foxhound drawing a cover. In the bedroom he made a rapid c- to round, and ended by throwing open the window, which appeared to give him some fresh cause for excitement, for he leaned out of it with loud ejaculations of interest and delight. Then he rushed down the stair out through the open window, threw himself upon his face on the lawn, sprang up and into the room once more, all with the energy of the hunter who was at the very heels of his quarry. The lamp, which was an ordinary standard, he examined with minute care, making certain measurements upon its bowl. He carefully scrutinized with his lens the tout field which covered the top of the chimney and scraped off some ashes which adhered to its upper surface, putting some of them into an envelope which he placed in his pocketbook. Finally, just as the doctor and the official police put it in appearance, he beckoned to the vicar, and we all three went out upon the lawn. "'I am glad to say that my investigation has not been entirely barren,' he remarked. "'I cannot remain to discuss the matter with the police, but I should be exceedingly obliged, Mr. Roundy, if you would give the inspector my compliments,' and direct his attention to the bedroom window and to the sitting-room lamp. Each is suggestive, and together they are almost conclusive. If the police would desire further information, I shall be happy to see any of them at the cottage. And now, Watson, I think that perhaps we shall be better employed elsewhere. It may be that the police resented the intrusion of an amateur, or that they imagined themselves to be upon some hopeful line of investigation, but it is certain that we heard nothing from them for the next two days. During this time Holmes spent some of his time smoking and dreaming in the cottage, but a greater portion in country walks, which he undertook alone, returning after many hours without remark as to where he had been. One experiment served to show me the line of his investigation. He had bought a lamp which was the duplicate of the one which had burned in the room of Mortimer Trojanus on the morning of the tragedy. This he filled with the same oil as that used at the vicarage, and he carefully timed the period which it would take to be exhausted. Another experiment which he made was of a more unpleasant nature, one which I am not likely ever to forget. You will remember, Watson, he remarked one afternoon, that there is a single common point of resemblance in the varying reports which have reached us. This concerns the effect of the atmosphere of the room, in which case upon those who had first entered it. You will recollect that Mortimer Tregennis, in describing the episode of his last visit to his brother's house, remarked that the doctor on entering the room fell into a chair. You had forgotten? Well, I can answer for it that it was so. Now you will remember also that Mrs. Porter, the housekeeper, told us that she herself fainted upon entering the room and had afterwards opened the window. In a second case, that of Mortimer Trojanus himself cannot have forgotten the horrible stuffiness of the room when we arrived, though the servant had thrown open the window. That servant I found upon inquiry was so ill that she had gone to her bed. You will admit, Watson, that these facts are very suggestive, In each case, there is evidence of a poisonous atmosphere. In each case, also, there is combustion going on in the room. In the one case, a fire. In the other, a lamp. The fire was needed, but the lamp was lit, as a comparison of the oil consumed will show long after it was broad daylight. Why? Surely because there is some connection between three things. The burning, the stuffy atmosphere, and finally, the madness or death of those unfortunate people. That is clear, is it not? It would appear so. At least we may accept it as a working hypothesis. We will suppose then that something was burned in each case which produced an atmosphere causing strange toxic effects. Very good. In the first instance, that of the Drogenus family, this substance was placed in the fire. Now the window was shut, but the fire would naturally carry fumes to some extent up the chimney. Hence one would expect the effects of the poison to be less than in the second case, where there was less escape for the vapor. The result seems to indicate that it was so, since in the first case only the woman, who had presumably the more sensitive organism, killed, the others exhibiting that temporary or permanent lunacy which is evidently the first effect of the drug. In the second case, the result was complete. The facts, therefore, seemed to bear out the theory of a poison which worked by combustion. With this train of reasoning in my head, I naturally looked about in Mortimer Trigenis' room to find some remains of the substance. The obvious place to look was the talc shelf or smoke guard of the lamp. There, sure enough, I perceived a number of flaky ashes, and round the edges a fringe of brownish powder, which had not yet been consumed. Half of this I took, as you saw, and I placed it in an envelope. Why half, Holmes? It is not for me, my dear Watson, to stand in the way of the official police force, "'I leave them all the evidence which I found. "'The poison still remained upon the talc, had they the wit to find it. "'Now, Watson, we will light our lamp. "'We will, however, take the precaution to open our window "'to avoid the premature decease of two deserving members of society. "'And you will seat yourself near that open window in an armchair, "'unless, like a sensible man, you determine to have nothing to do with the affair.' "'Oh, you will see it out, will you? "'I thought I knew my Watson. "'This chair I will place opposite yours, "'so that we may be the same distance from the poison and face to face. "'The door we will leave would. "'Each is now in a position to watch the other "'and to bring the experiment to an end "'should the symptoms seem alarming. "'Is that all clear?' "'Well, then, I take our powder... "'or what remains of it, from the envelope, "'and I lay it above the burning lamp. "'So, now, Watson, let us sit down and await developments.' "'They were not long in coming. "'I had hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odor, "'subtle and nauseous, "'at the very first whiff that my brain and my imagination were beyond all control.' black clouds swirled before my eyes, and my mind told me that in this cloud, unseen as yet, but about to spring out upon my appalled senses, lurked all that was vaguely horrible, all that was monstrous and inconceivably wicked in the universe. Vague shapes swirled and swam amid the dark cloud bank, each a menace and a warning of something coming, the advent of some unspeakable dweller upon the threshold, whose very shadow would blast my soul. A freezing horror took possession of me. I felt that my hair was rising, that my eyes were protruding, that my mouth was opened and my tongue like leather. The turmoil within my brain was such that something must surely snap. I tried to scream and was vaguely aware of some hoarse croak, which was my own voice, but distant and detached from myself. At the same moment, in some effort of escape, I broke through that cloud of despair and had a glimpse of Holmes's face, white, rigid, and drawn with horror, the very look which I had seen upon the features of the dead. It was that vision which gave me an instant of sanity and of strength. I dashed from my chair, threw my arms round Holmes, and together we lurched to the door, and in an instant afterwards, had thrown ourselves down upon the grass plot and were lying side by side, conscious only of the glorious sunshine which was bursting its way through that cloud of terror which had girt us in. Slowly it rose from our souls, like the mists from a landscape until peace and reason had returned, and we were sitting upon the grass, wiping our clammy foreheads and looking with apprehension at each other to mark the last traces of that terrific experience which we had undergone." "'Upon my word, Watson,' said Holmes at last, with an unsteady voice, "'I owe you both my thanks and an apology. "'It was an unjustifiable experiment, even for oneself and doubly so for a friend. "'I am really very sorry. "'You know,' I answered with some emotion, "'for I have never seen so much of Holmes's heart before.' That it is my greatest joy and privilege to help you. He relapsed at once into the half humorous, half cynical vein which was his habitual attitude to those about him. It would be superfluous to drive us mad, my dear Watson, said he. A candid observer would certainly declare that we were so already before we embarked upon so wild an experiment. "'I confess that I never imagined that the effect could be so sudden, so severe.' "'He dashed into the cottage, and reappearing with the burning lamp held at full arm's length, "'he threw it among a bank of brambles. "'We must give the room a little time to clear. "'I take it, Watson, that you have no longer a shadow of the doubt "'as to how these tragedies were produced?' "'None whatever.' but the case remains as obscure as before. Come into the arbor here and let us discuss it together. That villainous stuff seems still to linger round my throat. I think we must admit that all the evidence points to this man, Mortimer Trogenis, having been the criminal in the first tragedy, though he was the victim in the second one. We must remember, in the first place, that there was some story of a family quarrel followed by a reconciliation. How bitter that quarrel may have been, or how hollow the reconciliation, we cannot tell. When I think of Mortimer Trogenis with the foxy face and the small, shrewd, beady eyes behind the spectacles, he's not a man whom I should judge to be of a particularly forgiving disposition. Well, In the next place you will remember that this idea of someone moving in the garden, which took our attention for a moment from the real cause of the tragedy, emanated from him. He had a motive in misleading us. Finally, if he did not throw the substance into the fire at the moment of leaving the room, who did do so? The affair happened immediately after his departure. Had anyone else come in? The family would certainly have risen from the table. Besides, in peaceful Cornwall, visitors did not arrive after ten o'clock at night. We may take it, then, that all the evidence points to Mortimer Tragenis as the culprit. Then his own death was suicide? Well, Watson, it is on the face of a not impossible supposition... The man who had the guilt upon his soul of having brought such a fate upon his own family might well be driven by remorse to inflict it upon himself. There are, however, some cogent reasons against it. Fortunately, there is one man in England who knows all about it, and I have made arrangements by which we shall hear the facts this afternoon from his own lips. Ah! He is a little before his time. Perhaps you will kindly step this way. "'Dr. Leon Sterndale, we have been conducting a chemical experiment indoors, "'which has left our little room hardly fit for the reception of so distinguished a visitor.' "'I had heard the click of the garden gate, "'and now the majestic figure of the great African explorer appeared upon the path. "'He turned in some surprise toward the rustic arbor in which we sat. "'You sent for me, Mr. Holmes. "'I had your note about an hour ago, and I have come.' though I really do not know why I should obey your summons. Perhaps we can clear the point up before we separate said Holmes. Meanwhile, I am much obliged to you for your courteous acquiescence. You will excuse this formal reception in the open air, but my friend Watson and I have nearly furnished an additional chapter to what the papers call the Cornish Horror, and we prefer a clear atmosphere for the present. Perhaps... Since the matters which we have to discuss will affect you personally in a very intimate fashion, it is as well that we should talk where there can be no eavesdropping. The explorer took his cigar from his lips and gazed sternly at my companion. I am at a loss to know, sir, he said. What you can have to speak about which affects me personally in a very intimate fashion. The killing of Mortimer Tregenis, said Holmes. We'll continue our story on our next episode. We're always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a buy me a coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>